host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 4 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying an iced brown sugar oat milk espresso, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the infamous crimes of Diane Downs. Diane's full name is Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson Downs. She was born on August 7th of 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona, and her parents were Wesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson. She also had three other siblings while she was growing up. Diane has alleged that she was molested by her father as a child, however, this has never been proven, and her father has since denied it several times, and she has actually also admitted that she made this up. And this fits into a pattern of lying that Diane displays throughout her entire life that you're going to see as we continue through this episode. Her family moved around a lot while she was younger until her father finally got a stable job with the U.S. Postal Service when she was about 11 years old. And this almost ended up being a family tradition, and Diane would eventually work for the USPS as well. Growing up, her family was fairly strict and pretty conservative, but Diane wanted to fit in with the popular crowd at school. And it becomes pretty clear as she gets older that she really valued attention and she liked being the center of it. So in order to fit in, she had to rebel against her family's conservative ways. And at age 14, she stopped going by her given name, Elizabeth, and started using her middle name, Diane, instead. She also changed up her hairstyle, dyeing her hair bleach blonde, and she started wearing more trendy clothing that showed off her figure. In high school, she met her future husband, Stephen Downs, who her parents did not approve of. But obviously, this did not deter her from seeing him. And Diane is actually pretty well known for being quote-unquote boy crazy. She has been called promiscuous several times. She graduated from Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, Arizona. And after this, Steve left for the Navy. But the two promised that they were going to remain faithful to each other while he was gone. Diane attended Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Orange, California. But she was expelled after only one year for promiscuity, and she moved back in with her parents after this. And it can be assumed from this expulsion that she likely didn't remain as faithful as she had promised to Steve while he was away. However, the actual reason for her expulsion isn't known and has never been released to the public. Either way, Steve returned home, and the two were married on November 13th of 1973. The marriage was pretty rocky from the start, Steve worked a lot, and Diane became increasingly dissatisfied with their relationship. They also fought a lot about their finances, and they both, at different points, accused the other of cheating. Despite this, Diane gave birth to her first daughter, Christy, in October of 1974, and then later she gave birth to her daughter, Cheryl, in January of 1976. And Diane actually joined the Navy for a brief time after Christy was born in 1974, but she only spent three weeks in basic training before she returned home because Steve was apparently neglecting Christy. From 1976 to 1977, Diane was reported to have taken the kids and run away from Steve several times, mostly to relatives' homes or going back to her parents, but she always came back to him. And in 1978, the couple moved to Mesa, where they both started to work for a mobile home manufacturer. It was around this time that Diane began an affair with one of her co-workers at the manufacturer, and she gave birth to her son, Stephen Daniel, known as Danny, on December 29th of 1979. 
Steve raised Danny as his own, but Danny was not his son. Diane had begun this affair, so she had become pregnant by another man. But the two decided to divorce within a year of his birth, despite Steve being willing to be a father figure. Those who knew Diane described her as unfit to be a parent, and they said that she put everything before her children. And a neighbor of Diane's grandparents said that her daughter, Cheryl, had said that she was actually afraid of her mother. And apparently Diane was particularly mean towards Cheryl throughout her childhood. An interesting side note on Diane's life at this point, she actually tried to become a surrogate mother in order to support herself, and she ended up failing two different psychiatric exams that were required to be a part of the program. However, towards the end of 1981, she was accepted into a surrogate program, and she gave birth to a daughter on May 8th of 1982, and she was paid $10,000 for this experience. Based on this, Diane actually later decided to try and open her own surrogate clinic, but this business quickly failed. And eventually she found full-time employment with the USPS, and she was hired in 1981 to work at the Chandler Branch Post Office, which was located in Arizona. And then she later moved to Oregon, where she was assigned to mail routes in Cottage Grove, Oregon, before her eventual arrest in 1983. So now we're going to get into the crime of Elizabeth Diane Downs, and this begins on the night of May 19th of 1983. On this night, Diane Downs brought her children to an emergency room at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon, where they lived at the time, arriving at about 10.48 p.m. Diane greeted the emergency room staff by just repeating, Somebody just shot my kids and emergency room staff were the ones who eventually informed the police. Christy Ann, who was eight years old, Cheryl Lynn, who was seven, and Danny, who was three, had all been shot point-blank and were in the back seat of Diane's car. There was blood spatter all over the inside of the car, but there was none on Diane herself, and the murder weapon was eventually determined to be a twenty-two caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol. Diane gave her timeline of the night, which started with a quick dinner with her children at home, after which she had gone to the home of Heather Plord, who was a co-worker of hers. Diane explained that Heather had been thinking about buying a horse, and that she wanted to show her a newspaper ad she had found about horse rentals that she thought Heather would find really helpful. She also said she thought it was a good excuse to get the kids out of the house for a few hours. And according to Heather herself, they left the floor at home at about 9.45 p.m. After this, Diane said that she decided to take the kids for a scenic drive and claimed that a man had then flagged her down on the side of the road while her children had been asleep in the back seat. And she explained that she had pulled over because it seemed like he needed help. However, this was a very dark and desolate forest road, making it extremely suspicious that a single woman with three kids would be pulling over to address a complete stranger, even though she claims that she did this sort of sightseeing all the time. But either way, she got out of the car, and he demanded her keys, which she refused, claiming he then reached through the window and shot the children. According to her story, when he demanded the keys from her, her first reaction was to say, quote, are you kidding me, end quote. She said that she pretended to throw, the, to throw the car keys into the bushes by palming them and making a throwing motion, 
and then she tried to fight him off and outstepped the man, which is when he shot her in the left arm as she was trying to get back into her vehicle, and her injury ended up being non-life-threatening. Diane described this man as shaggy-haired and said that after this scene unfolded, he fled on foot and she never saw him again. She said that after the gun was fired, she had driven frantically to the hospital to get her children the medical treatment that they needed, and investigators were immediately suspicious of Diane because she seemed unusually calm after experiencing an event that you would think would be extremely traumatic on top of the fact that her children were in the hospital. From the interviews that she gave after the event, you would think that it had been a good amount of time since the incident had occurred because she was so calm and so unaffected. Another suspicious detail was that when she arrived at the hospital, she had wrapped a towel around her own arm to stop her bleeding from the gunshot wound. However, you would think that in most situations this severe a mother would think instead to use the towel to help her children and help to stop their bleeding, considering that their injuries were much more severe. They also found out that immediately after arriving at the hospital, she had placed a phone call to Robert Knickerbocker, who was a married man who she had been having an affair with, and he was a former co-worker from the USPS in Arizona. The two had met in 1981, and this was after Diane had divorced from Steve Downs. Unfortunately, Cheryl was fatally wounded by the gunshots, and she passed away moments after arriving at the hospital. And Danny suffered near-paralyzing injuries, but he did survive. Christy suffered a stroke as a complication of her injuries, which impaired her ability to speak. However, when Diane entered Christie's hospital room, a nurse noted that her eyes appeared to fill with fear, and her heart rate immediately spiked dramatically from 104 beats per minute to 147, so it became pretty clear to investigators and to medical staff really early on that Christie was afraid of her mother. While her children were still in the hospital, Diane began to give media interviews, and she really emphasized her own innocence since people quickly became very suspicious of her. The event had been released to the public really soon after it happened, considering that people were pretty concerned that there was possibly a child killer on the loose in their town. And the police actually had a sketch artist draw up an image based on Diane's description, but obviously nothing ever came of this. Diane's story began to show some conflicting details almost immediately, for example, she said she had taken the children down the dark road at night to do some sightseeing, but she also said they were asleep. The police began investigating her, finding some personal journals that detailed the affairs she was having with Robert Knickerbocker, and during the investigation, Knickerbocker told police that Diane had been stalking him, and that he thought she was thinking of killing his wife, if it meant that the two of them could be together and he said he had been extremely relieved when Diane left Arizona for Oregon. Diane claims that she did not own a twenty-two caliber handgun at the time of the shooting, but both her ex-husband Steve and Knickerbocker refuted this statement, and it was discovered that she had bought a twenty-two caliber handgun in Arizona, and the gun that was used that night was never recovered, but unfired casings were found in Diane's home that carried markings matching the gun that was used on that night. The forensic evidence collected from her car also did not match the story that Diane had told. There was no blood on the driver's side of the car, and there was no gunpowder residue on the driver's panel. 
Note that when a bullet is fired, a small amount of gunpowder is discharged towards the target, but because there was no residue on the driver's side door panel, it didn't make sense that someone had reached through there and fired into the back seat, which made it plausible that the shooter was actually in the driver's seat at the time. It also didn't make sense that if this person had wanted the vehicle, they would have shot the children first being that because Diane would have been the biggest opposition to car theft as she was the driver, the investigators thought that it was odd that the children had been harmed at all in this event, if it had played out the way that Diane had described. And the police actually asked Diane to do a reenactment of the crime, which is a pretty uncommon thing to do in true, in true crime cases, to have supposed victims relive their experiences, especially because this could be incredibly traumatizing for people but suspicions were definitely high enough to warrant it in this situation, and Diane readily agreed. Her behavior, however, during the reenactment was completely off. She almost seemed like she was having fun, and she was laughing and making jokes. I am going to link the clip for this reenactment in the show notes to this episode if you would like to watch it, and it is honestly pretty disturbing, but it is really telling about Diane's culpability in this case. In addition to all the weird inconsistencies in the way that she was acting, Diane's timeline was also flawed. They had left the floored home at 9.45pm, so investigators knew that the shooting would have had to have happened around 10.15pm in order for her to gather her senses and be able to arrive at the hospital by 10.48. However, one of the most damaging pieces of evidence came out when an eyewitness told the police that he had seen her driving that night at 10.20 p.m., which contradicts the timeline the police had established of 10.15. Additionally, the witness said her car was being driven to the hospital painfully slow at an estimated 5 to 7 miles per hour, which completely contradicts her story that she had sped there immediately after the event. Diane's driving shows an incredibly disturbing intent that she wanted the injuries she had inflicted on the kids to be bad enough by the time she reached the hospital that they wouldn't survive despite having reached medical treatment. She also changed her story multiple times. During her last interview before her arrest, Diane said both that she was attacked by two people who knew her name, and then she changed her story once again and started to claim that it was only one person, but that she knew this person by name. This interview lasted about two hours, and it was after this that the public began to demand Diane's arrest. Police actually hesitated with this arrest because they wanted to be able to speak with Christy first, and it took a lot of patience and a lot of work and a lot of time working with a therapist before Christy was willing to tell her story. Keep in mind, she was only eight at the time that these events happened, so it was incredibly traumatizing. On top of the fact that it would be terrifying to come out and, as a child, speak against your mother and blame her for these crimes. However, Christy was eventually able to gather the strength, and Diane was arrested on February 28th of 1984, which was nine months after the murder. She was charged with murder, and she was also charged with two counts each of attempted murder and of criminal assault in the first degree. Diane's trial began on May 10th of 1984 and lasted about six weeks, and it was one of the most widely covered murder trials in Oregon history. Before the trial began, authorities put Danny and Christy into protective custody, 
and Diane was really happy to act as a center of attention. She would smile and wave to reporters and spectators as she came and left the courthouse every day. And for the trial, supposedly in order to gain sympathy from the jury, Diana had seduced a man along her paper route and become pregnant by him. So while she was on trial, she was pregnant with another child. The prosecution argued that Downs had shot her children because she believed that they were getting in the way of her affair with Knickerbocker. Apparently, he had made it very clear to Diane that he didn't want kids, so she believed that it would be in her own best interest to get rid of them, and so she could continue her relationship with him. They also showed the jury a mock-up of the car doing a reenactment of the events to show the discrepancies in her story and they used little dolls to represent the kids in the backseat to give the jury a visual of everything that had happened that night. Christy was able to testify during the trial, and following many months of physical and mental therapy, she was able to tell the jury who had shot her that night. She told the court that her mother had pulled over to the side of the road, shot all three of the children, and then shot herself in the arm. She had been just eight years old at the time of the murder and was only nine when she took the stand, and police, the jury, the lawyers were all taken aback by her bravery and testifying against her mother. It must have been just terrifying for her, considering how traumatic the event would have been. During the trial process, psychiatrists examined Diane, and she was diagnosed with narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. Narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance and a deep need for excessive attention and admiration and a lack of empathy for others. So this description does a really good job of giving us some insight as to why maybe she acted like she was the center of attention and loved the media presence that was present at her trial. Histrionic personality disorder is characterized by a dependency on the approval of others, and people with this disorder have an overwhelming desire to be noticed and often behave really dramatically to get attention. This could definitely be seen by Diane's actions that she took way back even in high school, trying to get the attention of her peers and trying to get the attention of Knickerbocker in this way, especially if that was her primary motive for attacking her children. People with antisocial personality disorder, a lot of you will probably know this as sociopathy. This is a mental disorder in which a person shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and the feelings of others. They show no remorse or guilt and most dangerously can be very impulsive, which can help explain why Diane might have made the decision, especially if it was a decision made on a whim because it seems not very well planned out that she was going to commit these crimes on this night. Diane was found guilty, and she was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. During the sentencing, the judge made it very clear to the court that he wished for Diane to remain behind bars for the rest of her life, and even her own father has since come out and said that he believes that Diane committed these shootings without any shadow of a doubt. She gave birth between the verdict and the sentencing, and she named the child Amy Elizabeth, who was later adopted and renamed Rebecca Babcock, so she had no remnants of Diane in her life. After Diane's sentencing, her surviving children, Christy and Danny, went to live with one of the prosecutors on the case, 
Fred Huji and his wife Joanne, and the couple formally adopted the two children in 1984. Three years into her sentence, on July 11th of 1987, Diane escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center in Oregon where she was being held. In order to do this, she climbed two 18-foot fences and hid under a pickup truck waiting for a few minutes there before she simply just walked away. She was discovered in hiding about 10 days later, and she had been staying just blocks from this prison in Salem, Oregon, in the home of another inmate's husband. And she received an additional five years on her sentence as a consequence for this escape. She was transferred temporarily to the New Jersey Department of Corrections Clinton Correctional Center in November of 1987. She requested a new trial in September of 1991, but was quickly denied. And in 1994, she was transferred again to the Valley State Prison for Women, a facility in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. While in prison, Diane has earned an associate's college degree in general studies. This is something that's actually really common practice among long-term prisoners, and considering her mental issues, it is likely that Diane is just trying to appear reformed to increase her chances of being offered parole at some point. She was denied parole, however, in 2008 and then again in 2010, and after 2010, she was told she had to wait another decade before applying. However, she still maintains her innocence to this day. During her parole hearing in 2008, the Lane County District Attorney Douglas Harklerode wrote to the parole board, quote, Downs continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior. Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crime occurred, end quote. According to him, she referred to her assailant on that night as a bushy-haired stranger, two men wearing ski masks, and then also corrupt law enforcement officials, so her story has not remained constant throughout the years. As of 2021, Diane Downs became eligible for another parole hearing last year, but she has not made any measures towards applying, though I heavily doubt that she would be given the opportunity to walk free. Diane Downs, as with many other controversial figures in true crime, does have a small community of supporters who believe that she was wrongfully convicted, and she has boldly continued to maintain her innocence over the years. In this case, I don't believe there is much room to doubt that she committed these atrocities against her own children, and I think that her demeanor since the crime has shown a disturbing lack of remorse or even empathy for the damage that she caused. This case is, in the end, just heartbreaking, and I can only hope that her surviving children have found a semblance of peace and a happiness beyond this traumatizing crime. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. If you are interested in learning more about this case, all of my sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com, as well as the link to the video of Diane's reenactment of the shooting which I would definitely recommend checking out if you found this case interesting. And all of that being said, this episode is coming to a close. So again, thank you for listening, and until next time.